just feels like one of those busy Sundays. So I know uh, you probably have plans this afternoon, looking forward to that, just being together. But I'm excited about our study this morning as we're uh, continuing our walk through the book of Deuteronomy and looking at different aspects of it and uh, trying to figure out how do we untie the law? How do we understand it a little bit more and see where we are in the New Testament and our relationship to it and where we need to go beyond that? Uh, over the next few weeks, including this one, we're going to be looking at principles of the law. So uh, I wish that we could slowly work through every single law that we find in the Old Testament And that may seem kind of cumbersome, but I think it would be enjoyable to understand some of the aspects of it. But what I'm going to do over the next few weeks, I'm going to condense down some of these major uh, principles that you're going to find throughout the law and uh, kind of group them together as much as possible. And what we're looking at this week as well as next week, they pair together really nicely. And I was trying to decide what order they should come in. And so part of what we're going to be doing today will transition easily into next week and Uh, You'll see some of that come out, but we're going to be thinking about feasts. Um, In the Old Testament, how these feasts operated, what was their purpose, and part of the feast has to do with sacrifices. And so I was trying to decide what comes first, the sacrifice or the feast, and understand that. But I decided to go towards the feast so that we can have a little bit understanding, more of an understanding of when they were going to be doing these offerings, what was going on in context, uh, what were they expecting during this whole experience of being uh, in Jerusalem and celebrating these things. So that's kind of how we're going to approach this topic and why I decided to pick feast first. Recall our two main points, and uh, you'll see these over and over again, even today, that the law is an extension of God's nature. A lot of things we're going to be seeing about these feasts and why they were uh, being told to do these things, it's because of who God is. And that's going to be uh, presented in a very powerful way just through the scriptures and what they say. And the second part is those who uh, follow the law must love God first. Whatever he asks you to do, you're willing to do it wholeheartedly. So the flow of thought for the day, um, if you're just taking notes, want a little bit of an outline for how we're going to approach this topic and maybe just some chapters for you to reference. We're going to come back to it. We're going to be doing a pretty good bit of reading today. Um, As I said, I'd be fine every time if we just sit down and uh, read just the book of Deuteronomy and let it say uh, what it needs to. But this is kind of the the breakdown of how we're going to view what's going on here. When you see the law first being presented, even in the book of Exodus, you're going to find the Ten Commandments mentioned first. Those are the the tablets that Moses receives, and it's got these 10 basic laws that people are supposed to follow. And I feel like even in Christianity, we still struggle, and and people do, you know, should we follow the 10 commandments? Uh, What exactly is our relationship to them? They're very basic in our understanding, and they actually do cross over quite well with parts of Christianity, you know, you'll see the same 10 mentioned in the New Testament a little bit different way, except for uh, the day of the Sabbath. But we're going to talk about the Decalogue, uh, these 10 commandments, learn a little bit more about them. Then we're going to be looking at chapter 11, God's deeds and land. We've been looking overall about, you know, loving God first and, and really appreciating these commandments. And if you do have this appreciation for what the commandments are all about, Kind of sandwiched in this story, and you can kind of see jumping from chapter 5, which is very early on that he mentioned the Ten Commandments. And before you get to the rest of the commandments, uh, he's going to cover about five or six more chapters for us. And when you get to chapter 11, it's kind of this transition point that is another reminder for us about what God has done and what he will continue to do with the blessings and the cursings, what he will continue to do when these people come into the land. And if you will keep in mind God's deeds 
and the land, you will understand these feasts because they are going to correspond with those two main aspects. Then we'll look at chapter 12, the place of worship. And we're going to go outside of the book of Deuteronomy on most of these things, uh, just pulling in the whole law. But there's a specific mention in the book of Deuteronomy that there is a time where they will establish a place for everyone to come worship. Now, we know during this time they have the movable tabernacle. They'll set it up as they're marching around and they'll uh, uh, plant it back down where they need to. But there's a time coming where there's going to be a more permanent place And even beyond the Old Testament, we understand the more permanent place of God's presence, the true temple, which is the church. And then uh, we'll look at the three main feasts that are found in chapter 16. Uh, So that's why there's no verse references, just so you can mark down easily. Chapter 16 is a good place to see the three main feasts, but there's about seven in all that we can look at. All right, so the Decalogue, these Ten Commandments, uh, you will find them in chapter 5. And we won't read through all of them, but go to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and just kind of glance through for, uh, for your thoughts to see these Ten Commandments. And let's ask a question. Why are these commandments fundamental? And, and I'm calling them fundamental because you see them as some of the first main things that God tells his people. He said, these are things you need to keep in mind. These are things that you need to understand first, and then we will comp- uh, compound them. So that's why I'm calling them foundational. So just looking through the Ten Commandments, or if you've got them all uh, logged in your mind, why would we call these fundamental? What are one, uh, pick one of these commandments and think about how it may relate to some other things that we've studied so far. Okay, so right out of the gate, the first commandment, you shall have no other God before you. That's foundational and, you know, don't go after idols. And that's where the second one's going to come from there. There is only one God and the only one God is able to do all the things that we have been witnessing so far. The great things that he has done from the beginning of time and continues to do that God is God. He is Lord of Lords, Kings of Kings, God of Gods. He is the only one. And so you start there, and if you can get that, you love God first, and then everything flows from there. So yeah, I mean, just the beginning is foundational. Very good. What else? Yeah, so you've got, you you kind of break them up into two separate sets. Um, Think about those that have to do directly with God and those that have to do with other people. And so like the second half, it seems like, deal with our relationship to one another, which fits very nicely into the two greatest commandments that we talk about. You love God first, you love your neighbors yourself. Why should I not kill? Why should I not steal? Those are things that we can understand, but it's also because of my relationship with one another and that we take care of each other and I'm not going to uh, desire something else that you have that I may get it for myself. So you've got a relationship to God and you have relationship to others. I think that's a great foundational point. What else do you notice?
So these commandments set apart Israel from other nations, other people. Uh, If you will follow these things, then we can even see some of the basic foundational ideas that even in Christianity, if we will take these rules and follow them, we're going to be very different than other parts of the world, other people that don't have a commitment to God. And so it does separate people that are willing to follow these things from other groups of people. I think if you were to work through these Ten Commandments and start making some ties to other things you read through. So, I mean, this is early into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. But if you go beyond that and start looking at some of these other commandments, see if you can trace them back to here. How many of the other commandments are we going to read would be a violation of putting God as the only God? How many of the other commandments that we're going to read are a violation of don't make any graven images? How many of the commandments that we're going to read shore up the idea that you don't murder people, you don't steal, you don't take advantage of others, you honor father and mother? I think if you were to make, you could make a little system about the Ten Commandments, have a one, you know, and put it next to every commandment that you find that relates to commandment number one as you read through and just kind of mark them out that way. It's foundational. So Moses is retelling the law. He begins here and he says, look, these are things that we're all agreeing to and everything else will work from here. So keep that in your mind as we continue the study. The next thing that I want to look at is chapter 11. God's deeds and the land. So in chapter 11, starting in verse 1, going through verse 7, It is a reminder of the things that God has done. And really, you can look at uh, verse 7. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Look back over time. Look back at these great, mighty, powerful deeds. The arm of God has reached out and helped Israel and helped his people from the beginning of time. Remember, remember, remember what he has done whether it's uh, crossing the Red Sea, that he was able to part the land. Maybe it was him opening up the land and swallowing those people that were disobeying in the wilderness. Whatever that may be, God has done some great deed. And we remember that. I mean, here we are on Sunday morning. Why, are we, why do we worship on Sunday morning? What is the significance of the first day of the week for us? What was that great deed that God did? He raised his son from the dead. We're here this morning, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper in just a little bit to remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, he died on the cross, and three days later, he walked out of the grave. And here we are on Sunday morning, remembering that awesome event, and then we even mimic our lives in correlation to that. We die to our sins, we are buried with Christ, but we rise to walk in the newness of life. We think about God's great deeds over and over again. You may not think about the Exodus. That may not be the first thing that comes to your mind. You may not think about the, garage, uh, the dry ground. You may not think about the earth swallowing people whole, but you may think about Jesus conquering death. God's deeds are able to be seen, and we commemorate those, and we remember those together. And part of these uh, feasts are going to remember that as well. But the second part that you find in chapter 11 has to do with the land. So I'm going to start in verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, and that you may, you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you were going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land and that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to the offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables." But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, 
a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Think about this just for a second. Some of these feasts that we're going to be looking at in a moment, it's really being played out in that last verse from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The land, in a way, serves as a, as a witness to what God has done and what he continues to do. When they walk into this land, remember, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're standing at the brink of the Jordan. It's about to become dry ground. They're about to walk into this land that was promised to Abraham, and he said, you're going to return back here, and here they are waiting to go in. They're going into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, that has lands, that has houses, that has vineyards that they have not even touched that are provided for them if they'll do what God says. It's a land that they're not going to have to uh, water and take care of like when they were in Egypt where they tilled the ground and they're still going to have to work. I mean, that's part of what we find all the way back in Genesis that we're going to have to take care of what is provided for us. But the rains that come from heaven God takes care of the land. It's going to produce a lot different than what they experienced in Egypt. And what were some of the complaints when they were in Egypt? We want to go, I mean, when they were in the wilderness, they said, we want to go back to Egypt because there was food there. There were, you know, there were all these great things that we wanted to eat. And he said, yeah, you did it with your own hand, but you're going into a land that I'm going to provide for you. It's a lot different. And the land stands as a witness for what God has done and what he'll continue to do. And what do the curses say? He said, when you disobey God, what will happen to the land? It'll shrivel up. Locusts will come in. Mildew and uh, blight will take over your crops. It won't yield fruit for you. This land... God will take care of and he will provide from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, all in between that God will continue to show you that he is active. And he's not like these agrarian gods that they're going to experience in the land of Canaan. They're going in there and they're going to see all these different gods that correlate to the rains. They'll have a God that, that sends down the rains or is the rain, or they'll have someone that produces all the crops for them. And we see that in uh, um, Egyptian gods, We see that in Roman gods, Greek gods, in all their mythology, it has to do with the land. But what we see with God is that he is above the land. He is the one that actually does all of these things. He is in control. And so when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, and two of the main things that stick out to me that are going to relate to these feasts, God's deeds and the land. If you will do what God tells you to do, he will continue to provide for you in great, mighty ways, even going and fighting against your enemies. They don't even know what Jericho is going to be like when they get there. We know the story. So we're thinking about them conquering. Could you have invented that? If you were going to go and fight against Jericho, would you have come up with that tactic of let's march around it until the walls fall down? No, because God had to be involved. In so many other scenarios, when they go through the land, it's only because God is in control. That land will continue to bring forth milk and honey you know, great uh, gatherings of fruit and vegetables that they can't even imagine because God's taking care of it. I, I just think that is so enjoyable to, to read about and to see that the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Therefore, keep all the things I'm going to tell you to do. And if you go to the end of chapter 11, uh, verses 26 through the end of the chapter 26 through 32, you get the the blessings and the cursings. And he says, this land that you're going to possess, here's what it'll look like if you obey me, and here's what it looks like if you disobey me. So when we think about what these feasts represent, 
Make notation that chapter 11 will shore that up for you just a little bit more. All right, the next thing that I want to cover um, before we're going to really get into these feasts, the chosen place of worship. We're going to be going to 1 Kings chapter 8 in just a little bit, so if you want to uh, think about flipping there in just a moment, uh, you, can, you can see that. But chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, um, are going to talk about this specific place that the people are going to go to, a place that will be established. Um, we'll kind of jump around through some verses uh, just as I, I look through them, some things for a reminder. Um, he's making a distinction about how the people in this land are going to worship and how they are to worship. And he's saying, look, when you go in this land, you start tearing down idols left and right. So as he's giving them a commandment of when you go in this land, you tear them down, you might want to put a number two next to it. What was the second command? You shall not have any graven images. He said, you go in there and you take down the, the ashram. You take down the, the offerings to Baal. Destroy all those. That's not to be your God. You've already had that experience in the wilderness with a golden calf. Let's not go back there. Let's not worry about that again. When you go into the land, start destroying those things. Verse 4, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But verse 5, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Jump down to verse 15. He's telling them, all right, so when it comes time to do all these sacrifices, things that they've known for 40 years in the wilderness, they've been practicing and they're going to continue to practice, but it's going to be a little different when they get in this land where there's going to be other people around them that's going to distract them. He's saying, all right, you're going to have to have some of these journeys, and we talked about this exception uh, last week. You know, what do you do when it's uh, far off or whatever? But he's still saying this is your purpose. You're to come to this specific place, verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat with any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessings of the Lord your God that he has given you. When you come in this land, you're going to be provided for. You're going to have food. You can eat certain types of food in your homes and you celebrate what the Lord has done and what he continues to do. He provides for your family. When we sit down to eat a meal and we, we say that prayer beforehand, we thank God for giving us this meal you know, and, and give us strength from it that we may serve you. you know, it's usually one of the, the staples that we'll pray about that's just, it's a simple point of faith to know that God takes care of everything that we see around us and that the blessings that we have, they essentially come from God. And so he's telling them to some extent, he says, these things you, you are welcome to eat, but remember the Lord has given them to you. However, there's something a little bit different. In verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. So whatever you do, don't, uh, don't eat the blood because that contains life. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. Verse 17, you may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of the vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. So he's talking about there's this place of worship. There's this place that they're going to go to that they need to be looking for, but they don't know what it looks like yet, but God will show them this is where he's going to be. So let's ask a question. 
Why does God set rules about where to worship? I mean, you could read through the rest of that chapter if you wanted to and find some more teachings in there, but just generally for the Israelites, and we can carry this over into New Testament and think about worship, but I want to think about our study in the law right now. Why does God set rules about where to worship? What's the significance of this? Or why do you, just any reason, why do you think you'd be doing this? Okay, so having one central location, Daniel says, is that it would allow them to know that focal point and that it would, it would keep out some of those other distractions because they're going through, they're saying, well, there's a, an idol to Ashram and to Bel and to Molech and all these other places on every hill. The Israelites, when they commit idolatry, they worship God, uh, they, they offer you know, abominable practices on every hill and under every green tree. But there is a distinction the Israelites know this is the place that we're called to go to. Not any of these places that may look appetizing, that may look intriguing. Those don't match what this one location will be. I think that's a, a very good point. Appreciate that. What else? Yeah. Okay, so uh, Robert says that uh, God is concerned about symbols, is that he establishes certain things as a symbol, a representation, so that you may see it and know that it corresponds to something greater. Um, and all of these things are pointing to the New Testament. You read the book of Hebrews, and you're like, oh yeah, I see how those were a symbol. It's, and it's so cool to see those correlations about how every aspect of what was going on in the tabernacle and into the temple that points to what we are doing as the church. And so symbols are important. And I would even go, uh, you look at symbols, and I think um, that's right on track too, but also just the, the visual aspect of God. We are made in the image of God. And the image of God serves a purpose, something that can be seen, and there's something about it, and we are representations of that. Um, but even all the things that are going on in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices and all this, it's, it's something that you see, something you hear, something you smell, something that you touch. All these things are visual. All of them are tactile that, that you can know about. It. And it's, it's kind of like God teaching in, you know, in all these different realms that it's just to, to bring in every aspect of who we are as humans. And so uh, symbols is uh, absolutely is something visual that they can see and understand that God is behind it. I, I love that point. Yes, sir.
Yeah, so um, Jim says that it brings everybody together as a unit. Um, family is important in the Old Testament. Family is important in general, uh, and we see that all the way throughout. But there, there were a lot of the commandments, when I saw the Old Testament, there are a lot of commandments that are dedicated to the family being tight-knit. Um, and it's more than just your immediate household. It's everybody together. And, and that's why they would go on these big trips. And so when you see Jesus coming to the temple um, when he's 12 years old and you've got this whole convoy of his family coming, it was, that's what they would do. They, they traveled around together. And, and there's three specific feasts where people would come to Jerusalem, what it comes to be, but this specific place of worship. But it pulled everybody together. And that's why when you get to the day of Pentecost, you know, we know that 3,000 are, are baptized on that day, and they, they become the church, and they start taking care of each other, and they start uh, selling their possessions because these people have been traveling all over the place. They've been going uh, from all of their hometown coming to this central location, and they're there, and eventually the stores of food, the reserves are going to, to, to be depleted. You know, we go on a, a two-day trip, and we pack enough for a week. If you go on a week-long trip, and you're going to be celebrating something, you know, maybe those that are really prepared, you would, you know, have a couple of weeks of material. But eventually, that's going to run out. And so when the church is here in this city, and they don't have all their reserves from back at home, they start selling what they can so they can stay together, and they want to be bound together that way. It happens in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. So, yeah, I think there's a sense of community that it brings them together. And these feasts, when they share these meals together, they're sitting across the table. And what are they remembering? What God has done, and they're talking about it. They're remembering how God has provided for them and the food that's in front of them, the food that they just offered, all of these things, all these visuals, all these uh, symbols. They're enjoying it together. And you do see... Um, People going outside of that when the kingdom is divided and you've got Rehoboam that stays in Jerusalem with Judah and a couple of the other little tribes and then everyone else, all of Israel goes outside that and they said, we're going to go live in our tents. And then Jeroboam says, well, we want a place to worship. So he makes two golden calves this time uh, so that you can have somewhere else to go worship that is not Jerusalem. And that's where a divided kingdom and that's where you get Israel and uh, Judah and you find all the issues that come from there. So a little bit of uh, history beyond that. So I, I don't know, when you think about this question, why has God set rules about where to worship? These are all great, valid points. And so we know that people are looking for this. It was something that they were expecting when they come into the land. Um, and this is the passage that we just read. I don't know if you just want to mark that down, Deuteronomy 12, 15 through 18. Um, but I do like verse, verse 18, that last part. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. So let's think about this place of worship a little bit more. And let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8. I've got some points that I'm going to pull out in just a second. But how did we get to Solomon making a temple? What are some things that, uh, that added up to this? How did we get to Solomon having a temple? Okay, so it started with David, that he wanted to build a temple, but he had blood on his hands and he wasn't able to. Okay, so that's part of it. David's intention behind it. What else? Solomon. 
something David stored up for, for as well. First, Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles chapter 29 talks about David having stored up uh, some money and some possessions so that it could go to the building of the temple. So all the great wealth that Solomon had was then compounded by what David had. And so this project was provided for in many different ways. What else? You know, we're not too far into this uh, experience of the Israelites and their kings. So we've had Saul, David, Solomon, and then the divided kingdom. I mean, it's very quick beyond here because Solomon's son Rehoboam is going to be the one that starts oppressing people, but he's going to stay in Jerusalem where this temple is going to be. Solomon saw what David saw, that what everyone else that read the book of the law saw, that there was going to be a place. And it gets, everything narrows down, and they come to and decide that Jerusalem, where they're going to establish this temple, this is where it's going to be. And so here's some things that I noticed in this entire chapter. First off, Solomon builds this temple, and it's very elaborate. Go back just a, um, you know, a few chapters back, you'll learn a little bit more. Go a couple of books back in Second uh, Samuel, and you're going to learn what exactly Solomon put into this. It's elaborate. The pictures that if you pull up right now and you uh, look up like Jewish temple in Jerusalem, we know it was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. But the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD was not the same temple that Solomon had built. That was something that Herod the Great had redone and he had made even more elaborate. But just from reading, you find out exactly what Solomon did. It was visual. It sat up on a hill Every time you read in the New Testament where people go to Jerusalem, they go up to Jerusalem. You could, and when Jesus is uh, giving the, um, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, that's where he gives this prophecy that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives that is looking at this city. And everywhere you go around, you see the city that people are watching and they know this is where we're going to worship. As he builds this temple, they bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant comes in, God's presence is shown there. There's a cloud that comes in, and you can look at, uh, let's see, verse 9, First Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 9. There was nothing in the Ark except for the two tablets of the stone that Moses had put at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled, one, uh, uh, filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Actually, if you look at when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the very middle, it says that the poles that you know, went down the side so they wouldn't touch the actual Ark of the Covenant itself, the poles that went into it extended outside of uh, the Holy of Holies. That's how long they were. Like, we're not going to get anywhere near it. But they put it in there, and they walk out, and there's this cloud, and they can't, even, they can't even minister in the midst of the temple because the cloud has filled it. The presence of God has filled that. And so we know this is what had been expected, what they were looking for. The next part, uh, starting in verse 12, going through uh, 21, Solomon acknowledges God's deeds. He said, you have brought us to this point, uh, really because of David and a lot of things that happened there, and David's heart was geared toward this, that we have come here. Verse 21, and there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. We're in Deuteronomy Although we're reading in 1 Kings chapter 8 right now, but what are they still looking back to? 
God's deeds that he started in Egypt that have carried all the way over to make this point happen. God's deeds are important. The next part is, he says, this temple is the place where you said my name shall be there. If you start in verse 27 and read down through the the end of the, uh, let's see, through 53, Solomon is praying to God and he says, we want this place to be where people come to bring their sacrifices. We want this place to be where when people contend with each other, they come here. When people think about who you are, God, that they pray to you toward this city. They are establishing it. Solomon is dedicating it. And he says, this is the one that we've been looking for. This is the one that you showed us that this is going to be the place where your name can be seen. All of these things happen so that when we read in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it talks about the temple of God where his spirit dwells, where is that now? The church. And we think about the spirit of God in the church. We think about the spirit of God, the presence of God in the temple, and it crosses over quite nicely to where we are. So read 1 Kings chapter 8, and you'll learn more about this place. But it's all, once again, tied in together to the deeds that are in this particular land of what God is doing. So going from these uh, basic points, uh, the Ten Commandments, their foundational ideas, all the way over into this place that we're looking at. How do God's deeds, the land, and the place of worship relate to feasts? That's where we're going to go in the remainder of our time together. And this is why we're looking at principles. Uh, you know, we could just talk about the, uh, we could pick one of the feasts and we could spend our entire time dealing with it. Um, but I wanted to kind of group them all together and lay some foundational ideas. And that's the purpose of this. So uh, a couple of things. If you want a feast cheat sheet, so I like chapters that just works out really nice for us. If you're wanting to know where to go to study something, um, a certain chapter will just give you all the details contained. Uh, So if you're wanting to know um, how to read parables, I would tell you go to Matthew chapter 13. It teaches everything you need to know about parables. It teaches you how to read them, how to get into them, how not to go too far beyond them. It's a good little cheat sheet for you. Um, If you want to know uh, how the Pharisees were not doing what they needed to do, you go to Matthew chapter 23. It's things like that. I just like self-contained chapters. They're very helpful for our study together. If you're wanting to know about these feasts, two main chapters, Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Um, And although it's not the full chapter, but if you want the first reference, Exodus 23, 10 through 19 would be when they first heard about these feasts together. We're going to be looking at Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 together. Go to uh, Leviticus chapter 23, and let's look at some things there. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feast. The word appointed sticks out to me. There are appointed feasts at appointed times. If you read through Leviticus 23, there are going to be two specific months that stick out to you. The one, first one is the first month, and the next one is the seventh month. Last week when we were talking about the Passover and we were looking at some people's exceptions to that and how it worked, one of the things that we said about the Passover is that that started the beginning of the year for the people. Their calendar was based off of that, and everything else went from there. So the first month is when they would celebrate the Passover on the 14th day between the twilights of the 14th and the 15th. 
then you would start counting out from there. But there was another thing that they were looking for, and it was when they would bring in the harvest. And that would happen around the seventh month, or uh, they would start, excuse me, you would have in the first month, and they would start counting from there about the feast um, related to Pentecost, and, and when they would first bring out their produce. But then they were looking for the seventh month, and there were some things that were going to happen on that that we're going to see. But what sticks out to me, as I said, is their appointed feast at appointed times. Let me shift this over real quick. Um, in verses, uh, verse 3, you learn a little bit about the Sabbath, but let's jump down to verse 4 and let's read this again about um, what they knew concerning the Passover. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the Lord. Uh, for the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Jesus is killed on, around what time? Passover. You go into a week of unleavened bread that people are celebrating. First Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus is described as the Passover lamb. Based on when he was killed and what was going on, it was probably around the same time that they were killing the Passover lamb. If you look at the timing of it, there's a lot of things that fold in on this one thing. But if you're looking at these appointed feasts and appointed times, they all have to correlate to what God has done and what he will continue to do from there. So we're familiar with the, the Passover, we talked about that last week, but maybe uh, something that you're not familiar with, starting in verse 9, the Feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the uh, priest shall wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. The first of their land. When they go into the land, what are they going to see all around them? Provisions. What God has done. And he's telling them, you're going to celebrate this feast knowing what God has done. And you start counting out these other days beyond that. The next one is the, the Feast of Weeks, and that is going to correspond to uh, Pentecost. And so when we look at Acts chapter 2, we look at the end of Jesus, and you, you're actually tacking together the Passover and then the first fruits, and then that leads to Pentecost. That's where our timeline comes from, where we can know all these things that were happening at the end of Jesus' life, and you can uh, lay them all on top of each other. But if you were to read through these chapters together, you're going to see that reoccurring theme, how God provides for his people in the land, and how he continues to do these great and awesome deeds. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, Starting in verse 16. 
Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. You look at the produce, you look at your land, you look at everything around you, and it's a constant reminder of what God has done. And as they are celebrating these feasts in these particular locations, they're coming together as a family, reminding each other. And I think in some ways that when we spend time together as a church family, you know, what's the purpose of a fellowship meal? It doesn't correspond to one of these uh, Feast of Weeks or any of these other feasts, but it's a time where we can get together and just talk about what God has done. We sit down at the, the table together and we think about what God has done. We celebrate in many different ways, and it's not to the extent of this, but it was to bring people together. And I can see in some ways uh, this reminder for me that when we do sit down, when we walk, when we lie down, whatever it is that we talk about what the Lord has done. And if we share it with a mill, it's even better. It gives us a good opportunity there. But there are three main feasts that people are supposed to do. And those are detailed in Deuteronomy 16. You get uh, the other seven all together in Leviticus chapter 23. But there are three main ones. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast, or excuse me, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And attached to those were some other feasts that are uh, shown throughout as well. Let me jump down real quick. So let's ask this. Knowing some of these, uh, these festivals and these other opportunities that are put along with them, and like I said, I had to condense things down and we weren't able to cover them all together. What do you learn or what did the Jews recognize when they would celebrate the Passover meal together and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What are some things that you think they would sit down and talk about? What would come up in discussion? I've got one up there, but you can think about some others, I assume. What were they talking about? I heard that one first. What'd you say, Jim? Promises of God. Um, they're in Egypt when they first have the Passover, and God says, I'm going to take care of you. You take the lamb, you prepare yourself, you know, put your shoes on, you get ready to run but you're going to celebrate and there's going to be death that's happening around you, but you're going to be saved. So promises of God. What'd you say, George? Yeah. So it, where they came from, their true history of how did we get to this point right here today? It's because of what God started in Egypt that he led us all the way here. Very good. Mine that I, that I noticed from here is that, that God saves. The Passover meal is a reminder that God saves. And when we come to the New Testament and think about Jesus as that Passover, the Passover lamb that he continues to save, his blood cleanses us. It has been poured out. Um, and we die to ourselves and we are buried with Christ. Absolutely. Here's the next one. Um, so you would have the first fruits, as we said, that they would, when, it's in one of the descriptions, I believe it's Leviticus 23 when it's talking about it. He says, when your uh, sickle first hits the, the, the grain that comes up, you then start counting out from there. And so I'm putting together some feasts and some other things, but the first fruits and the feast of weeks. What is our reminder there? What are some things you think they would discuss with each other as they're looking at what the land is doing, as they're looking at um, sitting down and eating some of what God has given them? What do you think they're talking about? 
blessings. This meal has been provided by God. I mean, we, in some way, in a very basic way, we talk about that as well when we sit down and we eat. If you just want a good little connection here, the Passover and the, um, the first fruits come together. And it was after that Sabbath that they were start to celebrate the first fruits, which if you line these things up would have been the Sunday that Jesus was raised as the first fruits from the dead. First Corinthians chapter 15, you would look at that. And the last part is the seventh uh, month that I think a key theme to notice there is that God forgives. So these are just basic principles behind the feast and maybe it's a little bit different than how you would expect to approach this, but I hope it was a good study for you. We'll be looking at sacrifices next week.